You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. What we have to do uh, and what we are doing is standing up for the norms, the rules, the standards, uh, the values that uh, that united the united. So this is not about standing uh, against anyone in particular. It is about standing up for a, a rules-based order, uh, making sure that um, uh, we uphold those rules and principles if they're being challenged. Because it's exactly that that's undergirded peace, security, opportunity for people uh, for decades. So when they're being challenged, we have an obligation to stand up. That's the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken pointedly not mentioning China in an interview on Australian television last night before sitting down today with his fellow foreign ministers of the Quad, India, Japan and Australia. They're all in Melbourne today for a face-to-face meeting to talk about what has now become something of a mantra for these meetings, Indo-Pacific security, vaccines and enhanced cooperation. And nothing illustrates the US pivot to Asia more than its Secretary of State flying to the other side of the world for a meeting at the southern end of Australia, while all of Europe is focused on the massive military buildup on the Russia-Ukraine border. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt, Specialist Digital Editor for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. And meanwhile in Beijing, the blizzard of geopolitical hot takes and tensions continues to swirl on social media as the Winter Olympics move into their second week. But what of Xi Jinping's diplomatic sideshow? It wasn't just the meeting with Vladimir Putin that's being scrutinised, it's the meeting between Xi Jinping and the leaders of several Central Asian countries that lie between China and Russia that's the focus of attention. We're going to hear from our North American correspondent Mark Magnier about that and we're going to revisit a subject of US-China relations that's very familiar to longtime listeners of this podcast. What started out as Donald Trump's trade war against China, which led to massive tariff increases and then the Phase 1 trade agreement, has now celebrated two years. After two years of tariffs and trade goals, the verdict is in. We're going to hear from Candy Wong from the SEMP Political Economy Desk. She's been talking to both US and Chinese business owners for their insights on what's happening and what's in the future, and she's also been on the phone to Australian exporters. Curiously enough, it's also been roughly two years of China's unofficial trade boycott of Australian exports. And while the Australian government has been spending billions on American-made weapons, its farmers, winemakers, fishermen, timber millers and other business owners have lost billions in trade to what was once Australia's largest growing export market. Candy's got some very interesting insights on the changing mood in Australia about its relationship with China, a relationship which the Scott Morrison government is hoping to weaponise as an issue in the upcoming national election. Get your skates on and let's pirouette on with the show. Mark Magnia is in our New York bureau. He's one of our North American correspondents. Mark, the headlines, of course, have shifted to the geopolitical fray that is the Winter Olympics in Beijing. But one week ago, we were just a couple of hours ahead on this podcast of this meeting between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, the first face-to-face meeting for Xi Jinping since the beginning of the pandemic. A lot came out of that meeting but not much was actually distributed publicly. What do we know since then? What's been the 
the fallout or how has that meeting been received in American political circles? So I think the the U.S. is watching this very closely. They've been watching the Chinese and the Russians edge closer together for some time. Obviously, they're quite concerned of a somewhat united front amassing against them. I think the, the take here among many in Washington is that Russia needs China more than the other way around. And that if you look at the joint statement that came out, the relatively short notice about NATO related to the Ukraine, it's in the 28th paragraph. And some are reading that here, that China certainly wants to show this certain support for for Putin and for Moscow. But given ongoing strains with Europe already, given the economic shakiness in China, the unemployment prospects and domestic instability, concerns over Lithuania, and the impact that any invasion by Russia, as well as the expected sanctions, would have on energy and commodities was something that China probably doesn't want, especially given the upcoming National People's Congress with Xi going for a third five-year term. So another factor in this is that Chinese exports to Europe are about 10 times what Chinese exports are to Russia. So there's a lot at stake there. And I think the reading here is that China is somewhat wary on going full hog with Russia on its uh, fight over Ukraine. That's very interesting. And of course, the focus was on Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. And in fact, even the focus was on Vladimir Putin falling asleep in the stands there at the Alberts Nest Stadium. <laughs> but it was this other meeting, a meeting of leaders of Central Asian nations known a bit more casually as the stands, uh, Pakistan, Tajikistan, Kurdistan, Uzbekistan, and of course, Kazakhstan. How important is this, Mark? And what, what came of that? So I think the view from here is that at a time when the U.S. has staged this diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, one part of this was that it's important for Xi Jinping to show that there were many world leaders. In fact, 22 world leaders attended the opening ceremony, many of them representing autocratic nations. Those you mentioned as well as Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the UAE, Serbia. And so I think in part, this is a bid to, to show at a time when the Biden administration is making alliances a cornerstone of its strategy, particularly after the Trump administration policies, that we have alliances too. It's somewhat of a question how close those are. In terms of the Central Asian countries, you, I guess, in part have the Belt and Road Initiative going through there. But this, again, speaks a little bit to the underlying tensions between Russia and China, because Russia considers this its traditional neighborhood, but China these days has the money and the clout. So what you saw directly in this meeting was an effort by 
Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan to move ahead on the three-way railway that they're trying to do. And China kind of pushed back and said to the Kyrg president, you've got to first improve your, your business climate. And so they didn't get the cookies they wanted. These are essentially a lot of supplicating countries coming to China, hoping to have uh, a little face time with Xi. And another potential concern here is that a time when the Chinese economy is stumbling a bit, that there's always an underlying concern among Chinese people, or for that matter, almost any country, why are you spending money on a lot of money on foreign aid when things aren't so great at home? So I think those are probably some of the issues that came with this, this summitry for, um, for Central Asia. So one element of this was about the optics, but it really did look like almost like a summit meeting that Xi Jinping had managed to to engineer in this kind of sideline of the Olympics kind of moment. And once again, we see the Belt and Road railway infrastructure so crucial and what's you know fundamental to this huge push in trade from China into Europe. We are seeing again, that Belt and Road railway infrastructure really being pushed through the Central Asian nations. Yeah, I think that's right. Obviously, this is Xi Jinping's signature project. He's got a lot at stake at this, again, especially as we go into the National People's Congress and his aspirations for a third five-year term. And you're absolutely correct. There are so many big anniversaries this year and very significant moments that we know just how deeply China's Communist Party pays attention to history and significant dates in history. Let's talk about the other significant thing that's going on. Beijing, the first country in history to host both the Summer Olympics and the Winter Olympics. Of course, on scmp.com, we are seeing huge amounts of interest in various athletes and so much geopolitical pressure being brought to bear on these individuals who, you know, they thought they were just athletes, but it turns out they are <laughs> somehow, you know, satellite dishes to, to beam all kinds of nationalistic fervor on from both sides of the world. How is it playing out from your vantage point in New York? And I feel like we have to just zero in and say, Eileen Gu, this one woman, how is that discussion playing out in the US? You're, you're absolutely right. Nothing is free of geopolitics these days, it seems, in US-China relations. And that gets you know put on the shoulders of anyone who's in the middle of that. And in the case of Eileen, the US current policies, rather hardline policies toward China, are one of the rare bipartisan issues in the US these days. You still have the the Republicans in particular trying to outflank the Democrats on this. And this sort of came to the fore, I think, with Eileen Gu. With Fox News, TV host Will Kane tarred Gu as ungrateful for turning her back on the country she was raised in um, and her shameful, quote-unquote, defection and this sort of thing. I think, as you say, any individual is 
likely to get pulled into the geopolitical divide on this, particularly in Gu's case, because she's been very coy about what passport she has, which has been sort of uh, a point noted very pointedly by both sides, by the Chinese and the U.S. I think this also, this the whole mantra that we've seen out of the International Olympic Committee and China and others that there should be no politics in sport. I think that it's kind of it's just nothing but politics in many ways. And the the contrast as well with the other athlete, Zhu Yi, the other American who decided to compete on China's side. The contrast, I think, is quite interesting because Eileen is a big winner and Zhu Yi was a loser. And it underscored for some here this really still knee-jerk nationalism sometimes that is in the Chinese social sphere. By one account, the hashtag uh, Zhu Yi fell down was accessed 230 million times on Weibo leading over 90 accounts suspended and what have you for abusive posts. So some of the things that they lauded Eileen for, including the fact that she is headed for Stanford and her father went to Harvard. Her mother was at Beida at Peking University. Uh, at the same time, Zhu Yi was criticized in China for her privileged background. So <laughs> it's one of these things. I guess you have somewhat different standards if you're a big winner than if you're a loser. Can I ask you, is this complicating or indeed just colouring the discussion? We've heard from Jacob Fromer just a couple of weeks ago about the one thing that unites you know, Republican and, and Democrat politicians from various extremities and spheres is that they all take a hard line on China. Surely someone like Eileen Gu is someone who brings people together? Or am I being just a little bit idealistic about sport there? No, I, don't, I, I think it's... You know, you have a few people like the Fox hosts that are trying to make hay out of this. But I think for most people, you know, yeah, you have some moaning, but I don't think it's it's really a, a unifier. I think it's it's kind of a sideshow with the Olympics, all this publicity that's around there. And, you know, the number of athletes that represent a different country goes back for a long, long time. And it's a, quite a tradition. And this one has gotten a lot of attention in part because she's a model and has all these sponsorships with very fancy brands. And she's by most accounts quite intelligent and she's a great soft power vehicle. So I think she's gotten more attention, but it's not unusual to have people represent different teams in the Olympics. There's, there's a long history of that. That's an excellent point, Mark. And can I just jump in and, and ask the spotlight thrown upon the Uyghur athlete competing for China in the Winter Olympics, has that resonated at all in the US media? I think it has resonated a bit. I, th I think it's done in the context of perhaps China saying that sports should be uh, separated from politics, and yet the definition of what free from politics is can vary. I think that's seen as um, a kind of a poke you in the eye move to some extent, as was the Chinese soldier who had been posted on the Indian border, who was one of the torch relay bearers uh, leading India to pull out of sending top officials at the last minute. So it speaks to this broader debate 
on the part of the IOC and some others to say, oh, you should have politics and sport be separate. Yet oftentimes in the U.S., if some of the African-American athletes take a knee, then Americans yell and scream about how we need to keep politics and sport separate. So it's I think there's enough hypocrisy to go around. So, Mark, let me pivot away from the Olympics into a very interesting moment that the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, is in Australia right now when many people are saying he really should be focusing on the Ukraine, perhaps. But can you just bring us up to date with what Anthony Blinken is doing in Australia right now? So, yeah, there there are quite a few questions about in the middle of this potentially global crisis, what he's doing in Australia. And I think a few things are going on. In an interview today with Australian Broadcasting Corporation, a big point of this was, is the quad only designed to counter China? And they gave what is a longstanding mantra these days about how, no, it's got many functions, COVID and maritime cybersecurity, climate change, disinformation. But it's at the end of the day, mostly about China <laughs> in my book. And so I think there are a couple things going on. One is that I think every time the Biden administration has tried to pivot to Asia, it gets dragged back <laughs> by uh, more temporal crises. We've seen that with the Afghan pullout, now with Ukraine, with the ongoing negotiations with Iran for nuclear agreement. Um, so that is, is part of the context. I think the administration is also trying to send a signal that it can multitask. There was a comment by one senior official to the effect that we can walk and chew gum, uh, an American expression that they can do more than one thing at once. I think they want to try to project that. And I also think they want to perhaps signal to China not to get too close to Moscow, that we are here in your area, sphere of influence, and we are working hard to build military alliances and economic partnerships, as well as to Moscow to sort of signal, we're not going to make you the center of everything as much as you'd like to command all the attention with this crisis right now, that we can do other things at the same time. And then on top of that, I think you've seen this effort to strengthen and underscore the importance of alliances. Today, the administration announced a $14 billion deal with Indonesia for uh, 36 F-16 fighter aircraft and all the various parts that go with that. And then on Monday, a $100 million missile deal for Taiwan took another step forward. So there's a lot going on. I think the administration would like to make the Indo-Pacific a core part of its strategy as a way to counter China with the alliances. So they've sort of made this decision to try to continue going ahead with that, even though there's so much else going on in the world. It's fascinating that Beijing quite often uses the term Cold War mentality to criticize the US. There could be no better example of not being a Cold War mentality than flying to Melbourne, then Fiji and Hawaii when you're the Secretary of State for the US, when there's 100,000 Russian troops building up on the Ukrainian border. 
Mark Magnier, thank you very much. We will look forward to more of your reports on SEP.com. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you. Hey, it's Jasmine from the SEMP podcast team. Make sure you get our latest Listening Post newsletter this week. On Inside China, we're diving deep into Hong Kong's ongoing Omicron outbreak. With unprecedented restrictions and penalties as part of the dynamic zero COVID strategy, will they be enough as the city continues to record over a thousand daily cases? And how does this all compare with Singapore, which has moved on to living with COVID? An epidemiologist will also review which demographic in Hong Kong will be particularly vulnerable in the weeks and months ahead. And we're reviewing a podcast that explores how new technology is being used in crime. It's not computer hacking, but a criminal practice which dates back centuries: extortion. That's the Listening Post newsletter. Subscribe at scmp.com/newsletter, or click the link in the description. Candy Wong is a journalist who has recently joined our political economy desk, the spiritual home of the China Geopolitics podcast, and she's joined the team at a time when most of the newsroom is working from home. Candy, hello and welcome. Thank you. Hello, Jared. Candy, two years ago on this podcast, we established that the tariffs that were brought in under the Trump administration were having far more impact on American businesses than Chinese manufacturers. We are two years into the Phase One trade agreement signed by Trump. What are you hearing now? Recently, I've talked to some American manufacturers and also on、um, the U.S.-China Business Council in Washington. It seems like after two years, the negative impact to American manufacturer is like even stronger、um, than two years ago. It's just because. Since the start of the import tariff imposed to manufacturers, some of the Chinese manufacturers at the very beginning they actually shouldered some of the cost with the American manufacturers. But now, actually, all the import tariffs are being paid by the American manufacturers instead of the Chinese manufacturers. I also kind of verify from the Chinese Manufacturers Association in Hong Kong that the association actually represented a lot of. Manufacturers in Guangdong or other parts of China, and that's pretty much true. That no Chinese exporters are paying this kind of tariffs right now. So it seems that many Chinese manufacturers they don't care about the issue anymore. It's just because it's just not the matter. And then the American manufacturers that I talked to, for example, like Ben Zhang, who is the owner of Great Pacific. Industries that basically focus on a lot of advertising or commercial products that they have to do with the Chinese manufacturers a lot,、um, or even the loudspeaker manufacturer like Dan Digri, both of them just basically paid for the twenty five percent import tariffs like for two to three years already. So this is the period of time that basically all the cost. It's basically borne by the American manufacturers. So what they have to do is that they just have to raise the price straightly to their customers, or sometimes they just cannot really. They they just turn down businesses. It's just because of the supply chain disruption, COVID, the pandemic, and even you know everything that basically just inflate the cost, including the tariff that has already kind of give them some sort of hiccup for their businesses. 
It's really interesting. And like I say, we established two years ago that it's U.S. consumers and it's U.S. businesses that are paying the cost of these tariffs, not the Chinese businesses, manufacturers, as was kind of advertised by then President Donald Trump. One of the other things also part of this package of his trade war, as we called it back then, was this idea that the phase one trade deal would involve China buying a lot of products, a lot more exports from the US after two years. What's the verdict, Candy? Yeah, the problem is because of the inflation. I mean, part of the inflation that right now basically the manufacturers in America also kind of blame their own government is because it helps this inflationary environment. And this inflation actually for China's side, I mean, when, when they have to purchase stuff, they just choose you know i mean they if they have a choice or if they can just buy something cheaper then they've just basically turned their back to the us so that also kind of directly or indirectly affect the kind of commitment that china has made for the phase one trade deal i mean this is kind of like a vicious cycle that american manufacturers basically are complaining about like not just about the kind of direct impact on their business but it seems like the macro environment also kind of doesn't facilitate how China is going to commit to the phase one trade deal kind of promise. And then eventually it comes back that the American government would just blame China doesn't really kind of commit to what they have promised. And then they're not going to really live up the tariff. And then eventually, you know, the American manufacturers are still the victims toward this kind of higher tariff cost. So for them, I mean, for many of the American manufacturers, when I talk to them, they don't have a hope that this tariff will be removed, at least in this year. So what they're going to do is that they're trying every other means to basically save their business. For example, they have to apply for or they have to ask lobbyists to basically ask congressmen and then just ask the U.S. government to broaden the tariff exemption of products that they can just kind of get out of that high tariff cost list. Or the other manufacturers like Banjal actually go for the legal route to sue the U.S. government. And then they have to prove to the court that, well, basically this kind of tariff is unconstitutional. And then eventually they just want to get that reimbursement of the tariff. But the court right now in America basically doesn't really take up the case. Candy, that sounds quite the complex and vexing problems for American manufacturers and ultimately mm. consumers as well. One day, maybe there might be some discussion of this in the midterm elections later this year, but let's mm. turn to this side of the world right now. It's quite timely. We're speaking on Friday here in Hong Kong because as we speak, the foreign ministers of the US, India, Japan and Australia are meeting in Melbourne. This comes in a week where the Australian government is asked to join the WTO investigation into allegations Mm. of trade coercion by China targeting Lithuania. And this is a subject the winemakers, barley growers and lobster fishermen know a thing or two about in Australia. You've been speaking to some Australian exporters about the current state of trade between Australia and China. This story is coming up very soon on SCMP.com. Can you take us through some of what you've found? Yeah, I've talked to um, the Export Council of Australia and I've talked to some exporters in Australia, some analysts and then some people that are watching the situation. All in all, if I try to just boil it down, it's like just one very simple phrase, is that they just want Australia to maintain a friendly relationship with China in order to retain a competitive edge. 
because no matter what, it's been through like a few years, trade war and then COVID, and then all of the political skirmishes between Australia and China. It seems like Australian exporters are pretty kind of agile to move around this kind of difficult situations and they can kind of manage it. Still, at the end of the day, they feel like Chinese market is too huge to forego. So at the end of the day, they still feel like, well, a better relationship with China would just help the business especially if they want to build a brand in the huge Chinese market. It's just because an example, when I talked to like an entrepreneur, the startup owner, Annie Liu, that she said, well, a better relationship will just help them build a positive image in the Chinese market because they sell the health supplement products there with 90% of export to the Chinese market. And right now, basically many Chinese customers, they have a lot of choices. Like they tend to choose their own Chinese made products. So in order to kind of be a part of the market, if, you know, the Chinese customers feel like, oh, um, Australia is not friendly to them, then they may not just choose a product. It's just not good to the brand or product. That's it. So for them, it's like, they don't want that kind of high-level politics noises to really kind of affect or eat into their business. And they also want both governments can, in a medium term, can really kind of sit down to have a better kind of dialogue to each other. So for almost two years now, the Australian Trade Minister can't even get his phone calls answered uh, by his opposite number in Beijing. Katie, is there any indication there's been a resumption in any way of diplomatic relations you know, back-channel diplomacy between Australia and China? I got a chance to actually talk to the director at Australia-China Relations Institute at University of Technology, Sydney. The professor's name is James Lawrenson. What he said is that right now the problem is both sides, China and Australia, just don't have that kind of ministerial talk in order to maintain that kind of interaction, diplomatic interaction. So while China's attitude or maybe like a strain of, you know, economic sanctions on Australia makes China doesn't look like a very friendly global partner in the world. Um, simultaneously, the danger for Australia is more on whether both sides can really get back on the negotiation table and then just to maintain Australia's part or maybe the role in some sort of big deals, big global deals, for example, like the energy supply chain. So right now, basically for China, I mean, according to James Lawrenson, it seems like China basically would just put Australia on a higher kind of geopolitical risk premium list. So it is just harder for Australia to go back to the table of China as a partner for this kind of deals. And simultaneously, it seems like the federal election later this year for Australia, it seems like, you know, that kind of diplomatic policy has been set, including the China policy. So nothing is going to be changed, like on a very on a very top level. It's going to be the same. So the rest of it is that how Australia is trying to, or maybe China is trying to having a milder kind of attitude and then just come back to discuss with each other. Candy, previously we've seen and heard how China has, you know, it's not a trade war per se. They have picked up different Australian abattoirs for regulation problems. Uh, they've charged that the Australian wines being sold there is mm. technically being dumped there. The latest has been that they have banned the import of meat from one specific abattoir in Australia because of COVID-19 concerns. Do you think that's the next level of, of coercion or of, of trade action that China would bring against Australia? 
Yeah, I've talked to some analysts. Again, I just go back to James Lawson and also a senior fellow at Hudson Institute, John Lee, that they got their estimation like on what sectors in Australia will be more vulnerable to this kind of rough relationship between China and Australia. Especially you bring up that WTO thing and then COVID, that kind of thing. So agricultural products could be kind of vulnerable especially with the reason of COVID or maybe some sort of other health reasons, all that, that is not easy for Australia to argue, even though when this kind of issues just bring to the WTO for an assessment or something, if they load a complaint. So agricultural products will be one of the vulnerable parts. And then the other sectors will be, for example, like steel wine. I mean, wines export basically declined 97% last year from Australia to China. This problem can be resolved sooner or later. It's just because of the WTO complaint. But right now, basically, the exporter still is facing that kind of issue. And then timber you know, just the kind of sectors that China have other choices that they can just source it from elsewhere, then it's going to be a problem for Australia. This is fascinating. And now you've mentioned the WTO. And of course, in the last few days, we've heard that Australia has requested to join the WTO investigation of China's trade coercion of Lithuania. Now, we've heard about the Lithuania-China situation in detail from our mm. man in Brussels, Finbar Birmingham. Is there any update on what happens next for Australia's application to join, I think it's uh, Lithuania and the EU, uh, in this investigation of alleged trade coercion of Lithuania by China? Yeah, right now I'm actually reaching out to different analysts to ask the comments like whether there is some sort of political motivation with Canada and Australia joining the EU's WTO complaint. So if I have any updates, I can just talk to later. That sounds great, Candy. And of course, as we mentioned, the Australian federal election will be sometime in the next five months. I get the feeling you're going to be very busy uh, focusing <laughs> on the kinds of relationship deteriorating or otherwise between China and Australia. We can find you on Twitter, of course, at Candy Wong underscore SEMP. And we'll, of course, look forward to your feature stories coming up on SEMP.com. Candy Wong, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jared. That's all we have for you for this week's China Geopolitics podcast. Don't forget, along with Candy's feature on Australian trade and China, you'll be reading the latest reports and all the best analysis of the Quad meeting on SCMP.com this weekend, as well as all the drama and passion on the snow, on the ice, and on Chinese social media from the Beijing Olympics. Follow us on Twitter at SCMP News. Hunt me down at J underscore Watt. Big thanks to my producer, Jasmine Zer. My name is Jared Watt. Stay safe. See you next week.